This is a 980 CKNW podcast. 7.33 on this Sunday morning. Thank you so much for being with us today. We are going to check in now with Mike D'Souza, who is the managing editor at the National Observer and talking about a story he has written with some documents that have been released. Looking back to when Christy Clark was in power in this province in 2016 and some concerns about the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. Mike, thank you so much for being with us this morning. No problem, Jill. Uh, What were you able to uncover or what have you uncovered uh, with these documents? Well, they they unveil some of the details of um, the concerns that the previous government was raising. I mean, I, I don't think it was any secret that they had concerns and had publicly raised concerns about safety gaps on the coast. Uh, among other issues that they wanted the federal government to to address um, before that they could give their their public support for the project, I think what's what's interesting here is is seeing not only that they had submitted a list of um, eleven specific uh, marine safety gaps they called them, uh, but also seeing that that Transport Canada, the federal transport department had also agreed with most of them and, and had uh, had said internally that they wanted to address all of these concerns raised by BC in a comprehensive plan, which likely would have been the, the Oceans Protection Plan that was introduced later. But the other thing that's kind of interesting in, in these documents is that within Transport Canada, uh, they had also flagged that there was one exception to something being raised by BC uh, in which in which I guess they disagreed with, and we don't know based on these documents what what that thing is. Um, and you know, of course, as in the course of my reporting, I, I did ask Transport Canada if they could if they could provide further details about what these eleven points were. Um, and whether they could tell me what the exception was. And uh, I asked that question on Wednesday. I'm still waiting for a response. Uh, because looking at the documents, uh, it does read, it It feels like it's just getting to the good part when uh, there's a big black redaction on the paper. <laughs> um, certainly, yeah. And, and I think, uh, I think, Jill, that there there are, you know, some areas of, of these, I mean, we can we can extrapolate or, you know, there were public statements made by, by both governments at the time, um, you know, where we're talking about issues uh, that, that would include uh, pilot training, uh, the, the response times for, uh, for, for boats to arrive or tugs to arrive uh, in, in case of a spill or in case of a, a need of a cleanup. Um, so, you know, there are a few issues that, that we know that the government would have addressed at the time. The other, the other kind of interesting thing, though, is, is seeing that Transport Canada also took the position that the company should be the one um, should be the one paying for it. And so, these notes were prepared prior to a meeting that the top public servant at Transport Canada had with Ian Anderson, the head of uh, Kinder Morgan Canada, and the notes that the the, top, the public servant was given 
uh, prior to that meeting were indicating that that Transport Canada was pushing uh, or wanted to see Kinder Morgan cover the costs of, of, of these things. And, and of course, as, as you know, um, when, when the federal government did introduce its Oceans Protection Plan, it actually... Um, it was actually a $1.5 billion plan over five years that taxpayers are covering. So, I mean, I think that Kinder Morgan has made some commitments um, for, for some of its own spending on this project, uh, but, but some of these details are lacking. And, and it is, of course, interesting that as a condition of the project, you know, not all of these expenses were, were required um, when, when the federal government approved it. They didn't, they didn't actually insist or make it a binding condition that, uh, that Kinder Morgan cover all of these costs. And I suppose, too, looking at this and looking back at the time frame that these uh, these emails were going back and forth and uh, the, the concerns being raised, was it about the same time that Christy Clark had put forward her five uh, requirements that uh, she said BC had to have them met in order to support the project? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think those those five conditions also go back to, to, to Northern Gateway. They're, uh, you know, very, very similar similar uh, concerns raised. Um, but yeah, I mean, the number 11, I think, has has been reported previously, we've seen, but we just haven't actually seen this full list. Um, you know, another kind of interesting thing throughout throughout all of this is that the public servants within British Columbia, the ones that advise uh, the previous government, um, it, it would seem that they're not, um, they're protecting what that list is. And, and it's hard to gauge whether there has actually been a change in, in, in the demands currently currently being uh, raised or concerns currently being raised by the NDP government in, in BC versus what the, the Liberal, the Clark government had raised. So, um, you know, we know we know that there were concerns um, certainly raised at the time when the project itself was approved. Uh, Premier Clark had said that she believes um, that the Oceans Protection Plan of, 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 of the federal government would would likely address um, most of what uh, what she was concerned about. But she also said at the time that she wanted to see the details of what the federal government was going to do to improve marine safety. So. Um, you know, even as, as a reporter right now, we've asked lots of questions about details, specifically about what, what's in the response planning, response capacity, um, what kind of crew and pilot training are, are being done. There's also been questions raised about the science and what what scientific knowledge we have about how bitumen behaves when it is spilled into the into into water. Uh, certainly. You know, all of these federal government departments, um, they're not denying that there are gaps. Um, but, you know, what, what the argument that the federal government is making right now is that we can address some of these gaps through the existing research. The question is whether this research gets completed fast enough before any potential accident happens. Right, because uh, that's one of the issues that's been raised before as well, in that uh, you can you can have the safety plan in place and you can do all of that work beforehand, but because we've not dealt with any kind of catastrophe or disaster like that, it's really, it's not as though you, you can know 100% that your plan will work. 
No, and, and this is, yeah, this is something, I mean, the government, the federal government has put millions of dollars now. I mean, I think there's a breakdown that, that, um, that, I, that I quoted in, in the story last week. Uh, so I think we're talking about 50, 50 scientists, technologists, chemists, and engineers from four different major federal programs who are studying oil spill behavior and recovery technologies. So it's like three and a half million from, from Environment and Climate Change Canada um, per year. There's two million per year being spent at Natural Resources Canada. And um, it's millions of dollars, like the breakdown at, at Fisheries and Oceans Canada, it's $77.7 million. Um, so 50 experts in total that are still trying to figure out, I mean, they, they know some general, they have some general knowledge about how this product that would be going on the pipeline, the, the, the heavy oil that would be coming from the oil sands, they have a bit of an idea of how it behaves in water. But, you know, we saw, we saw cases like in, in terms of a few years ago in, in Michigan when, when, when um, an Enbridge pipeline, Line 6, uh, had ruptured uh, and spilled into the Kalamazoo River, we see years later that you know, some of that oil or the heavy oil is still on the bottom of the Kalamazoo River and has not been recovered um, you know, six, seven years after, after the spill occurs. So, you know, certainly scientists have raised questions. Um, the peer-reviewed papers and, and, and research that's out there uh, is, is not entirely conclusive yet in terms of what happens. Um, again, government and, and industry say they're confident they can address those, those gaps in time. Um, and, you know, it, it is certainly different from, from what, what many of the independent scientists scientists are saying. All right. Well, Mike, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time, but appreciate you coming on the show this morning. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks, Jill. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.